Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio on a very frosty morning. Um, very cold. <laughs> yeah. In fact, my hands were frozen when I arrived in Frisia, Um hence I'm a bit um, not as prepared as I usually am. Uh, but now more good now. Um, so in the studio we have myself, Jacob, and Megan. Good morning, everyone. Um, and um, I guess before um, we announce what's coming up in the program, I'd like to acknowledge um, that FreeCR is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Uh, I'd like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. Um, and also it's a particularly significant because NAIDOC week is coming up. Um, gearing up to that. And it's going to be starting actually in this suburb of Fitzroy uh, at the Aboriginal Medical um, Health, oh, I think the Aboriginal Health and Medical Centre. Or I, I We'll get you the address of that. And yeah, and we'll get the address soon. Um, yep. And that's going to be a march that starts. The festival festival of that is going to start at 9am. Um, and then and that's today. And then the rally will be starting, we'll be marching off at 10.30am. So highly recommend you um, get along to that if you can. And we're going to be having um, someone from SEED who will be coming in at 8.10am to talk about you know, um, climate justice, um, um, the um, NAIDOC week and um, the kind of how Aboriginal sovereignty and um, climate justice are connected as two kind of issues. Mm. Um, and um, we also have we also have another we also have another guest speaker from uh, or guest interview from um, Sudan um, who will be talking to us about the kind of up- ongoing um, Sudan- Sudanese uh, uprising. Mm. And that's at seven forty-five. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get um, started um, on some headline news um, from this week. And I guess the first kind of news story that's kind of been dominating headlines has been uh, the, the, the coalition's much-touted $158 billion income tax plan has passed Parliament, um, basically mm-hmm. giving massive um, tax cuts to, um, to, the, um, to those on the high, um, high income. And... It's basically in, um, cements sort of col- the coalition's first win, um, first win since the election. Well, since the the parliament just actually um, the parliament just started sitting um, in July, so this is sort of like the first of the kind of many reforms um, that uh, the the coalition government is attempting to bring in, and. In the end, um, they passed it with the support of of the Labor Party. Um, so much for being um, yeah. the party of the working class. Um, the only party to vote against these tax cuts were the Greens, and um, or and the Independent Andrew Wilkie in the case of the lower house. But the only 
party in the upper house that voted against these tax cuts were mm-hmm. the Greens. Um, and of course, um, the crossbenchers, Jackie Lambie and Centre Alliance offered the final crucial votes the federal government needed to pass the legislation. And to explain a bit, um, about what um, what the legislation means. It means that more than 10 million Australians will receive a tax cut up to um, $1,080. Um, and Prime Minister um, Scott Morrison said he was pleased that Parliament had endorsed the part plan the electorate gave him a mandate to deliver. This is a win tonight, not for the government, not for the Liberal National Parties. This is a win for the those hard-working Australians quietly going on about their lives. But, you know, it's basically, (laughs) it means that um, while, I guess, um, people below income $30,000 will not necessarily be affected, um, it's generally just going to mean lots of rich tax um, cuts for, for, you know, for... for, um, A lot of tax cuts for people who don't actually need it. And and really, we could use that to obviously combat climate change, to combat the housing crisis, etc. But we're giving them, we're giving tax cuts for the rich. That's great. Yeah. And, um, and of course, this is when the government is going to start complaining about, you know, we need to reach some kind of surplus. That's why we have to cut um, essential social services. That's right. We don't have any money. We, We need to enact austerity measures and all that sort of jazz. Yeah. Great. Thank <laughs> and so that's that's just um a bit of the kind of news that's kind of been dominating the headlines. Um, do you have any kind of news? Um, um, not at the moment. I'm sure I can dredge something up at some stage. Um, yeah. Well, maybe we'll play yeah. a quick announcement and we'll go move on to some other articles. Maybe something um from Green Left Weekly. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It's 7.08am. And um, we've got some news articles from Green Left Weekly, that um, this coming issue that we'd like to discuss. I mean, the first kind of one... Um, 
that's worth talking about is has been some of the politics that's actually been happening in the Women's World Cup, which is just getting into mm. the final. Actually, it's getting into the final um, this weekend on on Sunday. Um, and one of the um, one of the notable things has been um, the presence of um, uh, the United States team captain Megan. Um, Rappy, Rapino, yeah. um, who has been quite has made, been making quite a lot of noise um, of late um, because of her because um, she made basically um, stated that she will not be going to the well I'm not going <laughs> to swear on on, on on live radio but she basically said she will not be going to the White House to the effing White House <laughs> if um if um the United States wins the final mm-hmm. um and. And she's she's not um, she's not alone. Um, a lot of sports people have actually said that um, you know people at the top of their game, if they win, they, traditionally they go to the White House to be congratulated. Uh, a lot of them are refusing to do that. Well, so, except for some. Yeah. Um, well, there was one NFL team. Oh yeah, yeah, it's not. It's the not Patriots didn't, certainly didn't. <laughs> um, um, the New England Patriots certainly mm. didn't refuse that offer, especially their team, um, their quarterback Kim Timbo. Um, so in the um, in the Women's World Cup quarterfinal, um, um, it was two goals by US player Megan Rapinoe that um, got them over the line. And so if the US actually go all the way to win the cup on July seventh, Rapinoe um, will likely to have played a decisive part. Um, and so yeah, she she's been very vocal in her um, her, her dislike of um, you know the current the US administration. Um, and she's also a very big um, advocate um, for LGBT people herself um, being same-sex attracted. And um, Megan, interestingly, um, uh, she said when she said she wasn't actually going to go to the White House, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez av- invited her to the, um, was it the Congress? Yep. I can't remember. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and, and Megan took that up um, very heartily. But... Um, yeah, so she's um, she's a superstar forward, um, and she's very outspoken. And she's um, you know basically she has um, refused to uh, sing the national anthem um, in solidarity with the football players who go on bended knee. Um, uh, those sorts of issues. She's not um, backward in coming forward. She's really outspoken, and she's got some great um, you know got some great uh, things to say. Uh, one of her quotes is. Um, I'm not going to fake it, hobnob with the president who is clearly against so many of the things that I am for and so many of the things that I uh, actually am, uh, the openly gay player said. I have no interest in extending our platform to him. So, um, you know, there's a lot of debate on whether um, sports people should be um, involved in politics, should actually, you know, um, talk about politics in their political views. I mean, but these people are people. <laughs> they have the right to talk about their political views, especially when they're talking out against a president. Well, well who, I think um, I think this whole thing about um, you know, sports players shouldn't um, speak up about politics. It's actually, I think it's quite a deliberate construction. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, mainly in the sense that um, sports players generally have a very inflated platform. In fact, they get mm. these are player, people that are getting millions of dollars under kind of our capitalist kind of system. And so um, the capitalist system, you know, would, um, you know, what, um, is happy to sort of idolise these players, happy to put all these players in the spotlight because, you yeah. know, these players bring lots of profits lots of um, um, to, you know, to sports companies, team, teams, etc. Um, you know, and also mm. 
sports is kind of like being described and sort of from Marxist kind of perspectives as being the kind of opium of, of the people. Um, hey, um, because, you know, it's like a kind of thing that kind of it's a entertainment, a distraction yeah. from the broader yeah. kind of political issues. But I think, you know, it's more than fair game if a sports player is willing to speak up politically because mm. they are afforded such a large platform as being exactly. a sports star, um, then, um, then, than they would, um, than they would otherwise have. And of course, the same right wing, um, that is going on, that is going, that is going on about how, um, these players shouldn't be political, they shouldn't make any political stand, you know, are very happy to give Israel Folly all, a a free, a a free pass, um, simply because he's spouting, um, you know, bigotry and, you know, right wing. Stuff they feel is actually right. Yeah. Yeah. So this whole thing, I think, about, you know, how sports stars um, shouldn't um, gauge politics. I think we, we should reject that because it's only really the, when it's left-wing sports players making a, a stand for themselves yep. that get the backlash. Um, it's more than happy. And, of course, that goes both ways in the sense mm. that, you know, we shouldn't actually, um, you know, argue against... Um, we shouldn't be saying... The argument we shouldn't be making against mm. someone like Israel Follies, oh, well, he should just he shut up. Sh- he doesn't... Yeah, yeah he shouldn't say because, because we should be, yeah. we should be um, standing up for the explicit right for sports stars to make political viewpoints because that's then it helps us, the, uh, the left exactly. cause. Otherwise, it is hypocritical. But we should point out that whenever someone speaks up... Um, we, they have the right to speak, but they also have the responsibility to take the consequences of that speech. And the consequences for Israel have been that he no longer has a contract with Rugby Australia. And he has to understand that. But unfortunately, um, Israel uh, is now receiving millions of dollars for his um, fund uh, to fight Rugby Australia's decision. And that comes from, in part, um, uh, fundamental Christians here in Australia, but all around the world. Um, and again, it, it sort of highlights that hypocrisy. Um, it's okay for Israel Folau to say that a, you know, a, a young LGBT teen, um, because of their attraction, uh, because of their queerness, um, it should be burning in hell for eternity. That's okay for him to say to someone who might be quite, um, you know, mm. fragile and who may not have come out, etc., and who might have problems with their identity at the moment because they're so young. It's okay for him to say that. Um, with no consequences, apparently, so because it's his belief, yeah. So um, it is quite hypocritical. And Trump is a, it was one of these people who who continues the hypocrisy. Um, you know, with these sports people, he thinks they should shut up, but then if they say something that he agrees with, he'll he'll help. You know, he'll say, well, that's their right to free speech. Yeah. Pretty sad, but Megan Rapinoe has been like one of these beacons on the hill. She's just she does not. <laughs> Means her words. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, just let me. I might just play a quick um announcement. And so, actually, want to make a few more comments on the Israel folly from this article that Peter Boyle wrote for Greenleaf Weekly. But I just might play a quick um, a quick announcement, and then we'll move on. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. 
www.3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. So you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, we were just discussing um, um, the question of um, sports and politics and um, sports stars speaking up about politics, focusing on Megan Rapidy on... Rapinoe. Rapinoe. Yeah. <laughs> so Rapinoe on um, one end um, from the left and Israel Folly um, from more the extreme kind of right. <laughs> for, um, and um, I think one of the, some things that have sort of come out of it is that it's sort of the... Well, basically, so um, Israel was, you know, sacked by Rugby Australia for essentially, you know, hate, hate speech, um, mm. basically, and as part of sort of Rugby kind of Australia's guidelines. And interestingly enough, there's a bit, there's been a bit of actually debate on on this in the left, and because the left, some pe- sections of the left have tried to kind of appeal to, oh well, if we, if we, if he's allowed to be sacked um, for expressing his um, his views, um, then what's to stop, you know, um, this from entrenching, you know, um, an attack on workers' rights? And I think there's a few issues with that. Um, yeah, the main, the main, the main, the main issue is, I think the fact is, um, in terms of, of, um, you know, the rights of, of workers, um, to speak up about political issues. Um, I don't think we should necessarily be appealing to legalistic, um, sort of frameworks, um, to control those rights. It's actually strong unions and strong trade unions, um, that ensures that, um, that can be, um, kept, be the case. And in Israel Foley's case, you know, the fact that he's, his homophobe, outright homophobia is actually something that would, in a sense, break solidarity amongst workers. It's quite hard to convince, you know, like, let's say you're in a, well, the, fa- the fact is, Israel Foley is also, Ali is also a very highly paid sports star. Yes. Um, let's ignore yep. that. But let's imagine this situation was in the workplace. Um, Let's say you had a company um, that, you know, sacked a worker for, you know, expressing very homophobic kind of hateful views. Now, the problem um, is, and what happens if if that, you know, of that worker, um, if um, that same boss then uses a precedent to sort of sack a worker with, you know, other for expressing for standing up for the right to hold trade union. Now the fact is um, that first worker who got sacked for expressing homophobic views is already breaking his views, are already kind of breaking kind of the solidarity that mm. um, and um, that collective solidarity that could be developed amongst the workers to begin with. That could ensure mm. that that second case of a worker being sacked for simply standing up against the boss. Yeah. And, um, so it's really yeah, hard. Um, yeah. So I think you know there's a really important question of solidarity at the heart of it, and you can't create strong unions or strong um, solidarity amongst workplaces unless you overcome the issue, big issues like bigotry and racism. And sexism. And, and sexism, etc. Now, of, um, and, you know, of course, you know, bosses and workplace laws are, are kind of happy to co-opt, you know, the right to be under sack workers for expressing homophobia, expressing sexism, etc. But I think that's sort of just a reflection of the fact that the movement's 
uh, against those kind of oppressions have had such an impact um, that, you know, the capitalist system has had to adapt. But it doesn't mean that we should be then say, oh, it's a terrible thing that workers are getting sacked for racist views necessarily. Absolutely. When um, the mechanisms by which workers are getting sacked unfairly can only be overcome through solidarity and workers coming together. I, I think we have to um, tease out those two things. Um, we obviously fight for workers' rights and the rights for them to speak out, especially about injustices that happen in their workplace and that happen in the wider community. But when you start spouting uh, divisive hate speech, there has to be a consequence. And we always have to say, look, people are free to speak out, but people are not free to be consequence-free when they actually speak out and, hmm. and you know, and spout hate speech, devices, you know, speech. I mean, Israel Folau's... I've got Israel Folau's tweet up there. Here it says, Warning, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, idolaters, hell awaits you. I mean, basically that covers a lot of people in that, and that is a divisive, hateful thing to say. Eternal pain and damnation await you because you don't believe what I believe. Um, and if that's not divisive, I don't know what is. The consequences of that, the ramifications of that, if he's free speech, he can't get away from. And that's the important thing. He's free to speak it, but he's not free to be free of the consequences of, the, of such hate speech. And that is a difference. It's an important difference. And I think that's also the important difference in when we fight for a worker's right to be reinstated after being sacked for something. Um, <clears throat> what were they sacked for and what was, you know, was it divisive hate speech? Um, or was it something that was actually a legitimate um, problem, a legitimate issue that they had? So, yeah. Alright, um, but, um, just close up this discussion bit. I actually might, for the next four minutes, just might play a song mainly because, um, I arrived a bit late in the studio and need to get some stuff kind of ready for the, the <laughs> next two things of the program. Um, so I'm going to play this song, um, Good Feeling by Live by Violet Femme. It's actually kind of a song that nice. my dad list, um, my dad's a big fan of this band, so it's a bit of a nostalgia. <laughs>
That was Good Feeling by um, Violent Femmes. Um, now, I guess we'll move on. I wanted to, to spring up this sort of article, and it's actually the subject of a protest that's happening at the State Library at 12pm tomorrow. Um, and it's about um, the question of Palestine and, and um, what's described as Trump's deal of the century. And um, to start up the article, um, Palestinian leaders have criticised US President Donald Trump's much-hyped and long-awaited vision for Middle East peace, unveiled on June 25th in Bahrain as um, more neo-colonialist containment. Um, Trump has touted the plan as the deal of the century, and... Um, you know, um, Jared Kusher, um, who's Trump's son-in-law and architect of the plan, described it as the opportunity of the of the century. The proposal, peace, prosperity, prosperity, um, is the latest in a long line of U.S. proposals over many decades and many U.S. presidents. It contains yet another economic um, plan for Palestine, which is unlikely to see, succeed in the absence of any plan. For justice, and to explain it, um, the first part proposes a uh, fifty billion dollars U.S. investment in 179 projects designed to unleash the economic potential of the Palestinian people. The projects include spending on better building, better health and education facilities, providing career counselling for and jobs for students, etc. And you know basically very neoliberal, encouraging Palestinian entrepreneurship and innovation. There's even, you know, a project um, to build a new Palestinian university, even though the West Bank 
bank in the Gaza Strip already has um, 14 universities in operation. You know, using the whole gamut of economic buzzwords, the proposal reads like a build-your-own-economy uh, a beginner's guide. And, you know, Dan Kotzer, um a former U.S. Amb- uh, ambassador to Israel and Egypt and professor of Middle East policies at Princeton University, tweeted, I would give this so-called plan a C- minus from an undergrad student. The authors of the plan clearly understand nothing. And one of the things about it is, you know, no official Palestinian or Israeli delegations have attended the Bahrain workshop while they were invited. Um, the Palestinian Authority and many in the Palestinian um, private sector boycotted. You know, attempts at, um, at promoting an economic normalisation of the Israeli occupation will be rejected, the Palestinian Liberation Organization's chief negotiator, Saeb Arakat, um, said on May 20th. And Palestinian businesses um, issued a joint statement on May 22nd saying bluntly that successive U.S. proposals for economic peace have been tried and have failed every time precisely because freedom and sovereignty for Palestinians was lacking. And the Hamas leadership in Gaza rejected um, the U.S. proposal as a as an attempt to enter, integrate the U- Israeli occupation in the religion region at the expense of the Palestinian cause. Um, so, you know, the U.S. proposal has also been panned by uh, an, an analysis, etc. And I think the binding issue going into sort of the conclude, um, the binding issue left kind of unaddressed in this whole core deal, because I guess to summarise kind of so-called deal of the century is the U.S. without really any consultation mm. from the Palestinians or even Israel, mm-hmm. um, although not that that would make anything better, um, has implement, has proposed this so-called economic plan, which is all, which is all a bunch of sort of, um, investment to kind of, um, facilitate kind of free market kind of enterprise in, in, in Palestine. But a kind of binding issue is it does, there's absolutely nothing here that addresses the kind of pressing issue of Israel and Palestine, which is the whole issue of the occupation occupation of Palestinian land by uh, by the Israel state. Mm-hmm. And I think the binding issue, as it writes here, the binding issue left unaddressed in the Trump proposal was the reality of the Israeli military occupation and control of um, the Palestinian territories. You know, despite there's a, some kind of, there's an assertion that the economic plan was a necessary precondition for peace, the complete lack of um, contextual analysis prompted one Kuwaiti observer um, investor to observe that the Trump appeared to design the interiors before the architect had designed the building. <laughs> and of course, in, a, in the 25 years since the um, Oslo peace accords were signed, Israel has all but cemented its control over the Palestinian territories it occupied in the 1967 war. One of the crowning um, pieces of this control was the 1994 Paris Protocol, which outlined the interim economic framework to govern the occupied um, Palestinian territories until a final peace, status peace agreement was reached. So that's, mm. I think that's... Um, 
um, I think that's a summary. And I guess to conclude the article, um, one of the last kind of things it says is what must be challenged is Israel and the Trump, Israel's and the Trump's administration's containment strategy or its no state solution. Israel's military occupation and colonization cannot be allowed to continue at the expense of Palestinian rights, freedom and justice. A political solution that ends Israel's illegal occupation and apartheid regime is what is required. Um, it's interesting. Um, I was listening to alternative radio before our show came on, and um, one of the things that stuck out, I believe um, Noam Chomsky has said this, but um, to paraphrase, when you look to provide solutions for a community, for a culture, um, you know, the first thing that you need to do is consult people who live and work and are a part of that culture or that community, etc. We could never assume that the, our way of looking at things and our way of providing solutions is the way to go because we don't live in these places. We don't, you know, we have to provide a voice for the very people who, whose problem it is. And, of course, the US just comes in and carte blanche just stomps over any of these issues. There's not even any, um, any, even, even lip service paid to consultation of the Palestinian people over Palestinian issues. And this is an issue in here in Australia, you know, indigenous issues or, uh, sex work issues or issues of, you know, um, international politics like the Sudanese People's Revolution. When, you know, when governments and, and, um, often organisational bodies, uh, try to propose solutions, the very first thing they should do is consult the communities themselves and that's often not the case. So, yeah. yeah. So there's going to be, um, a protest organised against, um, condemning this kind of so-called deal of the century by Donald Trump um, for Palestine, and it's going to be, ha- um, and it's been called by the Palestinian community, and it's going to be happening at 12 p.m. Um, at the at the state um, at the state library. Um, so highly encourage and you that's tomorrow. Tomorrow, it? yes, yeah. um, to come along to it if you can. Um, and yeah, I think it will be an important protest, especially since it is. The kind of nature that issue is a bit more obscure. That hopefully the um, the um, the article I sort of read out, um, sort of or discuss we discussed just recent um, now um, gives a bit of insight into it. All right, might play a quick announcement. We'll move on to another news article. Don't panic. There is a planet B. Come along to a sparkling night of progressive comedy at Greenleft Weekly's annual comedy debate. Join Masters of Ceremonies, Rod Quantock, with Sean Bedlam, Duff, Fiona Scott Norman, Hellchild, Kirsty Mack, and Tom Tanuki. Tickets are $50 Solidarity, $30 Regular, $22 Low Waged, and $12 Concession. There'll be a bar and the opportunity to buy a delicious dinner. Friday the 26th of July, 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Don't panic, there is a Planet B, a fundraiser for the radical newspaper Green Left Weekly. Bookings are essential, phone 9639 8622 or go to trybooking.com/bdhtx. Green Left Weekly is a 3CR supporter.
So I'm here at the school kids strike for climate action with some of the people who are on strike today. Can you tell us your names and how old you are? Uh, so my name's Ivy and I'm 12 years old. My name is Marsha and I'm 8 years old. My name's Layla and I'm 11 years old. Inequality is at a 70 year high. Our jobs are going offshore, our jobs are being casualised. 40% of us are trapped in insecure work. The richest 1% have more than the 70% of us at the bottom. And workers will stand up and fight. You've never seen a fight before until you back the Australian workers into a corner and tell them they've got no rights. Those workers will fight. 3CR, union issues and workers' struggles. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It is 7.37am and um, I guess wanted to actually just talk about actually a film I watched over the weekend, um, which is actually playing in theatres right now. Um, it's a, the newest film by Bong Joon-ho. Um, oh, Bong Joon-ho. Yeah, yeah. who um, directed, um, he's known for directing Memories of a Murder and The Host. Um, and interesting enough, there's a, a bit of an interesting political background with him as a South Korean um, filmmaker, uh, in a sense that he um, has served as a cultural kind of minister, um, has sort of identified with the sort of um, moderate, the centre-left, and has been associated with um, what would be the equivalent to the ALP um, in South Korea, um, although they would be a bit more to the left of the ALP because they are, are actually the sort of... Gen- probably, An actual workers' party. Well, not necessary, <laughs> but more of a, a opposition because I guess one of the political contexts in South Korea is that it is a country where um, capitalism has been allowed to run much more rampant in terms of the curbing of civil liberties. I mean, they, I mean, people do go on about how terrible North Korea is for civil liberties, but South Korea has put no paradise, despite the fact that it is, you know, it is more of a liberal democracy in terms of, you know, people have the right um, to criticise the government, etc. It's just more people live in absolute... Their, the sections of society that live in absolute poverty, which then gives me the perfect segue to talk about his latest film, Parasite. Um, so the film is actually, um, so I watched it over the weekend and, um, it's currently playing in Cinema Nova and it actually won, you know, won a special award at the film festival in Cairns. Um, the film is about a group of, um, of a, a very, of a very poor, um, South Korean family. In fact, the film start opens with them you know, basically um, getting very excited that they've finally been able to find free Wi-Fi, sort of. Oh. <laughs> and so they're, um, they're, they're clearly, um, that sort of sets up the scene that they're a very poor family that can't even afford Wi-Fi. They basically live in a very sort of, an, in a house that is sort of like below ground level, um, that's sort of like, Located in a sort of alleyway of um of um you know south in the South Korean city. Anyway, the kind of main thrust of the story um they um is um is basically how the family cons their way into being employed by a very rich South Korean family. Uh, and so it starts off by um the son getting employed um 
through his friend, um, getting employed by the family to, to, to be an English tutor for their daughter, who um, for the family's daughter, who are in high school. Um, and then he sort of figures out, oh, well, maybe I can get my sister employed um, as an art teacher for the son, and maybe I can then get my... Um, my mother employed as a ha- as a housekeeper, and then get um, then get my other family, my dad to be employed as a driver, and they go through particular kind of schemes um, and to get there. And so, hence the film is sort of like it kind of the film is sort of reflective of this whole um, theme of you know class envy, um, and there's sort of an interesting. I think one of the interesting things about the film is the fact that it does one of the kind of things about a lot of Asian films is they you generally don't see um, a poor you generally there's not very much films that really portray the, the nature of poverty in these countries because generally I think for both Japan and South Korea they generally like to show a very clean kind of version of what um, what life is like yeah, in South Korea goes into the movies. in Japan yeah. and what kind of goes into movies and, and enforces a few reasons for that I mean one of them is to make it seem kind of more attractive uh, to visit because, you know, these all those countries both have very thriving tourist industries, um, but there's also almost like a, it's a p- political message in a sense of denial um, that poverty actually exists. Um, and so with these recent, with this recent film, Parasite, and another film um, that was a Japanese film that was actually nominated for the Oscars, Shoplifters, um, there's a, it's kind of interesting that there's a now a crop of films that do actually show, um, you know, what poverty is like um, and the nature of poverty in those countries. Um, and so, yeah, the film is quite, gets quite, it got quite intense, um, and it's filled with quite a number of twists and turns, and, um, I definitely highly recommend watching it, um, without spoiling it, um, there's quite a, there's a big sort of twist kind of at the end of the story, um, and, you know, it also ends in a very, kind of a bizarre way, um, and, and the film kind of does capture, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a thriller, but it's also, a bit hard to define in terms of genre because of the, the nature of how how the plot develops and and so on, and also the kind of its political message is also a bit almost neutral to a certain extent. It doesn't necessarily. Um, it's sort of up to the audience to make their kind of moral judgments of of the characters, both the rich and the poor, and it doesn't really lean into one particular direction or another. Mm, it sounds like an interesting movie. Yeah, so I definitely recommend Hollywood seeing it, and um, it's actually being—it's actually going to be subjected to a, a remake by the United States. The United States are kind of in oh, talks of to do a remake of the film <laughs> uh, because they need to adapt it for their cultural sensibilities. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, just well, um, and um, I think in two. Yeah. So we're actually going to go. Uh, we're interviewing um, a Sudanese activist as a Elphil. Uh, very shortly, so um, we'll get her online and um, we'll be talking about the Sudanese people's uprising. Well, actually, I could actually play a quick two-minute song, um, which will then let us in, get us into yeah. 7.45 and then we'll go, go, um, hook into the interview. <laughs> and so this is Promised Land by the Marawampi Band, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. <laughs>
Hey, again, you're well, you're listening to Green, Green Left Radio, uh, 8.55 on your AM dial. This is Megan. Um, and we have on the line Azza Elphil. Uh, we're going to talk to her about um, the uh, Sydney's People's Uprising. Um, and Azza is a Sydney's woman living and working in Melbourne for the past four years. Uh, she's strongly connected with Sudan and her people back home. And along with Sudanese, uh, the Sudanese diaspora all over the world, she's been actively raising awareness of the current situation in Sudan. Um, so, yeah, let's get um, Azza on the line. Azza, can you, listen? Okay, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi, Megan. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on the radio show. Thank you for having me. Excellent. And Azza, what I might do is um, get you to just give an overview of exactly what's happening in Sudan for people who might not know um, and just um, some general, general information about uh, the background of the uprising. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, the, the, we've, I'm not sure many people know that, but in Sudan for the past 30 years, we've had um, a dictatorship which came through a military coup in 1989. Um, so uh, throughout the past 30 years, this always has been uh, waves of demonstrations and unrest and uh, people was, were fighting back. Um, it really got intense in 2013. Uh, when there was um, uh, demonstrations all around Sudan, but that was quickly suppressed by the government, quickly and violently actually suppressed by the government. Tens of, of people were killed, uh, many of them used in their um, team. Um, and then uh, continue, the, the Sudanese continued to fight against the government, but things have, um, went kind of um, um, quickly in December 2018, when a small group of uh, school students um, w- took to the streets demonstrating um, shortage in bread, those demonstrations quickly um, quickly became all across Sudan, and eventually all of the Sudanese cities were out in the streets. Um, the, the the only difference between these this uprising from the previous uprisings we had during those 30 years is that this during this time we actually have a leadership. So mm. from the people, a leadership um, merged, and the leadership uh, is under the Sudanese Professionals Association, which is a coalition of uh, uh, workers' unions. Um, and eventually, they were the, um, the, the the fruit of the uprising, and they started the uprising. And um, some political parties joined in. So now they are leading um, the current uprising. Excellent. And um, I mean, you just pointed out that the, um, there was um, the youth were involved in this uprising. I mean, this is a generation that's never seen um, life that isn't under a dictatorship. And um, I imagine you mentioned the bread shortage, and I believe that you know that you have situations where people are you know waiting in cars for days to get petrol and um, these sorts of things. Um, how how involved have the youth been in this uprising? And and do you think it's kind of a wider um, cultural change or anything? Anything like that? Yes, I think, um, it's, first of all, we never imagined the youth will be this involved since, as you just mentioned, they've never lived in a democracy. So um, the thinking was that they, they will always accept this, but, but um, fortunately for all of Sudan, they're not accepting it. That's and right. they're not tolerating it. And it's, it's funny because some of them have actually said to us, uh, the older generations, how have you guys been putting up with 
with this government, you know? Mm. And so the youth are now in uh, their uh, exposure to the world. They know their rights. They know what they should be, uh, the living standards they should be uh, getting from the government. And so they're not accepting it. And um, what's, what's, what's really good is, um, which actually is unfortunate, but because of the, the way the youth have been treated by the government and lack of, there's, there's um, shortage of jobs, um, even the quality of education, quality of um, uh, medical care. So it kind of put the youth in a, in a position where, nope, it's either we die or, or this mm-hmm. has to change. And and that is a very real possibility. I mean, anyone involved in this uprising in Sudan, um, there is the potential of danger. This is not something, you know, that we do here. We, we protest and, and we go home to our homes. There has been instances of, um, you know, violence and death. And um, it must take... Um, a certain amount of immense bravery to stand up against a government who was willing to, um, I believe, drive you into rivers and, um, you know, and, and shoot into crowds, etc. Um, how do, so, you know, you've mentioned that um, you're part of the diaspora of the Sudanese community that have gone um, all around the world. And um, on um, last Sunday, there was a protest, which I believe you helped organise um, yep. and uh, pressuring uh, the Australian government to take a stand against the Sudanese government. Um, and in that, I saw some, I saw such a strong Sudanese community and such passion mm. to try and, um, uh, you know, to, to rectify this situation. And I, I know I spoke to you then, and you said that um, the people who have uh, gone to countries where they have, you know, been able to have a better life, um, you know, where they've had them and their families have had opportunities have a responsibility to the people uh, back home who are facing the situation to actually speak out and make sure that their voices are heard um, all across the world. Um, You know, from from the ground, from people in Sudan, what sort of stories are you hearing and, and, um, you know, how how are people around the world helping their Sudanese um, community? Yeah, so uh, it's very violent in in Sudan um, on the ground. It's very extremely Mm. violent. We've lost so many beautiful uh, souls, uh, most of them in their prime years, um, which is which we shouldn't have. But right. I guess um, with every revolution, we ha- there's some casualties, unfortunately. Um, so um, people are getting killed, people are getting detained, people are missing. That's how it is on the ground. Mm. Um, as I said, uh, for everyone back home, it's either to be or not to be. So it's either we get rid of the government or we will be eventually killed. We're going to be either killed by them in our homes, which has happened. They've went mm-hmm. into people's homes, killed them for several reasons, or we're going to be killed because of lack of medical care or because of shortage of food or because of war in other places around Sudan. So that's how it is back home. For us living outside of Sudan, it's we have a duty to raise awareness um, we, under, we understand that the international community is, is kind of, um, I'm not going to say um, doesn't care, but they're just detached from what's happening in Africa in general. Mm. Um, they perceive Africa as a continent with, with, which constantly has issues. Um, but it's a bit different. I think we all need to understand that if there's injustice anywhere in the world, that's a threat to justice everywhere. Yes. So for us as Sudanese living outside, we've we've 
we're basically raising awareness and also we're involved in um, funding the revolution, um, funding it in, in fine financial terms. Mm. So that's that's basically so we, we we have the easy we're doing the easy bit we're doing the easy bit of raising awareness and raising funds. Um, unfortunately, on the ground they're doing the hard bit, which is losing their lives. Yes, and on that note, um, you know, here in Australia, what sort of things can the general community do? So, you know, as you said, um, you know, an injustice anywhere is an injustice that we need to fight against. What can the general Australian community do to help uh, the, the people in Sudan and, and um, help promote what's happening? Yeah. So uh, before I answer that question, I just want to um, mention that we've got six main um, issues that um, as us as the Sudanese outside of Sudan are trying to raise awareness uh, about. And so these six issues are, the first one is we need um, the international community to, or, to recognize uh, the, the demands of the Sudanese people. And the demands is for civilian government. Uh, and that the military council steps down. The second one is um, we've got the Janjaweed, which is the rapid um, uh, forces um, in all the cities around Sudan. Um, they've been they, they they've mainly been actively killing and and detaining uh, Sudanese. We we need the, this forces these forces to be dismantled. Um, the other thing is we need an independent investigation. We had a massacre on the third of June where the security forces raided a sit-in in front of the military um, headquarters and killed hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need um, to um, um, aid for victims of, of the attacks and, 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 and funding. Um, we also need uh, the international community to get involved in the release of all political detainees. And unfortunately, the sixth one is currently for the past four uh, weeks, Sudan has been um, in a total, total internet blackout. Mm. Uh, how the community, the international community, can help is first of all ask the government to support the Sudan Six. Speak to your local um, uh, par- member of parliament. Um, have them uh, raise this discussion in parliament. The second is uh, peaceful uh, protest. So, as you mentioned, Megan, last week we had a, pr- a peaceful protest. We usually organize uh, one each weekend. Um, so if, if um, other non-Sudanese um, Australians can attend these protests, they will definitely um, strengthen them, these protests for us. The other, the other thing is empowering people in Sudan, and, and one of that is to donate, and, and, and because these donations go into medical supplies, go into uh, without the internet black without the internet we actually need to go door to door and knock on people's door and tell them this is happening now we're going to have a demonstration tomorrow uh, or this is what the military council is doing so that's how um, that way you can help there's also petitions online uh, that are targeted to different parliament houses um, there's a one for the for UK one for the UN and one for the United States and just talk about it. Talk about it as much as you can. Talk about it to your friends, to your families, to your coworkers. Absolutely. Do you have a, a website or a Facebook page, etc., where people can visit and learn more and donate and, and sign petitions, etc.? So we've got the, the Sudanese um, Professionals Association um, um, website. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it has all the information uh, on the current uprising and how uh, you can assist and, and, and also news on the late, latest news on what's going on. Excellent. Um, so we're about to wrap up the, um, the interview. Is there anything that you wanted to sort of say to summarize um, what's going on um, and, and, you know, basically give us an idea of what we're going to do or what you're going to do moving forward and, and to, to help people and help democracy in Sudan? So uh, we're currently um, in, in Sudan. There's currently um, demonstrations and there's, and there's negotiations between the uh, Sudanese Professional Association and also the Military Council. But for us, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's about a civilian government. We will not accept military um, personnel in, in, in that government. That's not their place. They shouldn't be um, governing people. So we'll continue that struggle until we reach what we need and we achieve what, what we should and deserve. Uh, what we need is from Sudanese outside of Sudan and non-Sudanese is just to raise awareness and to contribute and to donate to our struggle. Absolutely. And look, it's it's so amazing to see, uh, you know, the fact that you've got a blackout um, in, in Sudan, but still so many people are taking to the streets. Um, the, the, the passion behind it is very obvious and even the passion behind it here in, in the, the Sudanese, uh, the Australian um, community, the Melbourne community, um, we are watching this and um, maybe we'll get you back on the show to just um, let us know what's happening in future because we don't think this is uh, we think it's probably going to be around for a while, um, yeah. and there's there's a huge struggle ahead. But um, it, we take so much hope from uh, what people of Sudan are doing, and um, those around the world who are supporting them are doing. Yeah, I Absolutely. agree, Megan. And as uh, many of the countries around us in Africa and also other Arab countries, um, it, it, we're their hope. We're their yes. hope for democracy, and everyone yeah. is watching us. And so we will not let. Uh, ourselves down and we will not let other people down. I just want to say uh, thank you, Megan. Thank you for all your support. You've always been in all our protests. You've been there. You've been helping us raise awareness and it, it is truly appreciated. Absolutely. Solidarity with people around the world when they yes. fight for democracy and they fight for their rights. Absolutely. We will always do that, Green Left Radio. And um, yeah, we thank you so much for coming on the show, Azza. Thank you um, for having I'd me. I'd like to point out to the listeners that this is Azza's first radio interview and she's done fantastically. <laughs> thank you so much. And I'm sure that we'll be speaking to you um, shortly about the situation. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Megan. Bye. See you. Bye. And that was um, Azza Elphil, and uh, she is one of the organisers um, of the protests and the support from the Melbourne Sudanese community here for the People's Uprising in Sudan. Um, we will be watching that closely because that is a very, very um, interesting uprising. And um, when the Sudanese fighting for their democracy, as Azza said, they're fighting for the hope of that region as well. So thank you, Azza. All right. We might just play one quick announcement. And then we'll go on to, well, yeah, we'll go on to what, um, to the activist calendar. Yes. <laughs> Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, Oden, Lower Galinea, in the Adi, three CRA, Africa, Somalia, or Atos, Wedgason, Chirten, having Casto or Chumaha, Tawanka, Illa, Yoko, Yotawanka, Hadda Atos, Wedgason, Kartan, Sidi, Yabarka, Illa, Yosagalka, Yabarka. هذين كستو تلاذع وحائدين سو قد بنينا 
سيدي عادة النوع حيد وراركا تالية دا إيو كوة دالكا أستراليا إيو وليبا وريسيا دي خبرة دا مرك اللو باحضو وحاد كالو نقد اغيسان كرتان بوغ انترنت كا 3cr.org.au اسلاش سومالي إلا إيو اسبول وقت إير أيان سوغيني وقت إير كسوري وقت إير هوري ولو سيقدر لها مركو حان رجينينا إني تالي دوارندها كفا إذي سنيسو مهاد سنيدين يدقي سوان Alright, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it is time for the activist calendar, um, where we'll announce what's coming up in terms of the activist world. Um, so to start off um, is the, um, the 2019 Victorian NADOC March. Um, will be happening today from 9am from the from the pre-March festival and 10:30 a.m. at the um, um, is when the march starts, and it'll be um, and it's at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, 186 um, Nicholson Street in Fitzroy. Um, and then there'll be uh, the Music Strike Anywhere, um, a progressive U.S. Um, punk band, um, which is who are performing at 8 p.m. at the Suki Lounge at 1648 Burwood Highway in Belgrave. On Saturday, um, there'll be a protest. Melbourne says no to the sale of Palestine. Reject Trump's fake deal of the century. And they'll be happening at 12 p.m. at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street. Um, and then afterwards, there'll be a forum, Colonialism and Racism from Australia to Israel slash Palestine, Australia's National Solidarity Against the Intersections of Colonialism and Racism, happening at 2 p.m. at the Bowls Club, Flagstaff Gardens, Dudley West Dudley Street, West Melbourne, and it's hosted by the Australian Jewish Democratic Society. Um, there'll be free cartooning, graphics and poetry workshops sponsored by Overland Magazine from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Shrades Hall. Um, start the riot, um, free CR Radiophon punk fundraiser at um, at 8 p.m. Um, from um, at Bar Free or Free, Free or Free High Street in Northcote. And on Tuesday, July the 9th, there'll be Pass It On, Preserving Australians' Indigenous Languages, happening at um, 6.15pm at the Wheeler Centre, 176 Little Lungsdale Street in the city. Um, and from Wednesday, July 10th to July 21st, there'll be a theatre, the Bakshiri, um, a new heart-breaking, truthful truthful exploration of the Bakri myths steeped in ritual and rebellion that puts women's right at the forefront. And that, that's at the La Mama Courthouse, 349 Drummond Street in Carlton. On Wednesday, July the tw- 10th, um, there'll be a conference, Fair Go for Pensioners, um, from um, 9am to 4pm at the Greek Orthodox Church, 23 to 29 Victoria Street in Coburg. Um, there'll be a public meeting, O'Reilly No, um, a Mizrahi response to Zionism. O'Reilly Noy is a prominent Israeli journalist and activist, um, and Fiatret, and they'll be at the Fiatret at the State Library, 179 Shrobe Street in the city, and it's hosted by the Australian Jewish Democratic Society. On Sunday, July the 14th, um, there'll be a rally, Free Assange, Free Manning, at 2pm at the State Library. And on Monday, um, July the 14th, there'll be an organising meeting, Sustainable Cities. Our key work is stop, stopping destructive megatoll road projects and winning better transport alternatives. So they'll be happening at 6.30pm at the Bolwyn Library, 336 Whitehorse Road in Bolwyn. 
On Tuesday, July the 16th, there'll be a public meeting. I oh, know this is wrong. So that previous meeting is on July the 15th, um, um, which is a Monday. <laughs> and then the next, the public meeting, um, animal liberation and capitalism will be on Tuesday, July the 16th, um, at 6.30 p.m. with meal available from 6 p.m. at the Resistance Centre, level 5407 Swanson Street. And it's hosted by Green Left Weekly and Social Alliance. Um, and then the next events, there will be um, a theatre, a room of one, uh, one's own t- today um, with campaigns, a room of one own uh, today with campaigns such as Me Too, Time's Up and Now Australia, a room of one's own by Regina Wolfe shines light on our history with astounding relevance to contemporary society. And so that's at the La Mama Courthouse from Wednesday, July the 17th to July the 28th at 349 Drummond Street in Carlton. On Friday, July the 19th, there'll be a silent sit-in, protest to fight climate change at 1.15pm Flinders Street and Swanson Street intersection in the city. On Saturday, July the tw- um, 20th, there'll be rally six years too long, close Manus and, and Nauru, um, at, bring them here, at, and they'll be at the State Library, 2pm at 328 Swanson Street in the city. On Sunday, July the 21st, um, there'll be the Victorian Socialist Conference, a meeting to discuss the next steps after the federal election from 9am to 5pm at the MUA Hall, 45 Island Street in West Melbourne. On on Tuesday, July the 21st, there'll be a film screening of Ella, um, which looks at the career of Ella Havalkar, the first Indigenous dancer to be involved in a, into the Australian ballot in its 50-year-old 50, 50 um, year history. And they'll be at 6.30pm at the Community Arts Centre, 45 Moreland Street in Footscray. And Friday, July the 26th, will be the Green Left Weekly's annual Comedy debate, don't panic, there is a planet B, um, happening from, um, with doors opening from 6.30, um, and with the comedy staying at 8pm at the Brunswick Town Hall on Sydney Road in Brunswick. For more info, phone 96398622. Um, and then Saturday, July the 27th, um, there'll be Gazpaccio, uh, reading of Peter Green's, um, uh, play dealing with the Spanish Civil War. Um, and they'll be at 2pm at the La Mana Courthouse, 349 Drummond Street in Carlton. And Sunday, July 28th, there'll be the Run for Refugees. Whenever you run, um, jog, walk, or jog, hop, or skip across the finish line, we hope you can count on you to join Asylum Seeker Resources Centre for this year's Run Melbourne. And that is, ha- well, I presume it's actually at the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre in Footscray, but there's no address there. Um, and the last three events I'll announce um, is on Friday, August the 2nd, there'll be a forum, Decolonising Environmentalism, uh, featuring um, New South Wales Green Senator Maureen Farouk. Um, and they'll be at 6pm Friday, the August the 2nd, Library at the Dock, 107 Victoria Harvard Promenade in the Docklands. And it's hosted by the Multicultural Greens. Um, and then... Friday, August the 9th, there'll be the uni walkout for climate action. The education sector needs to be at the forefront of the fight against climate change, and they'll be happening at 12 noon at the National Union of Students, 16 Bally Street in North Melbourne. 
Um, and then Saturday, August the 10th, there we fight the right at Anti-Fascist Day Forum from 12pm to 6pm at the Shrays Hall, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton South. Alright, so that's um, all finished up, and now it is um, 8.10am, and in the studio we have um, Jacob Peluso. Peluso, yeah. Um, he is uh, a volunteer um, with SEED, um, and so we have him especially because it sort of marks the start of um, NADOC week, well, kind of this week, and I think it actually starts yeah, next week, starts on Sunday, but the sort of March makes me... Conjures up today in um, a lot of the festivities. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Um, Oh, ah, my apologies, listeners. We forgot to turn on um, the microphone, but now you can. Is that better? Yes, that's better. Now we can. (laughs) Yeah. All right. um, So, good morning, um, Jacob. Um, I guess maybe to to start off, um, maybe tell us a bit about yourself and you know what kind of NADOC week kind of means to you. yeah, so as I said, my name's Jacob Peluso. Um, it's Italian. Um, yeah. So, Nadoc Week for me, like, um, growing up, I wasn't actually aware of my Indigenous culture history until I was about 13 years old. And so, um, there was a bit of a coming of age moment when I was about 17 when I volunteered in the Indigenous community in, um, in, in Cairns. And from there, it sort of made me realise, um, there was a lot of things that I, wasn't quite aware of and a lot of like a lot of these uh, indigenous issues that had sort of flown under the radar in my eyes I grew up predominantly you know as a quote-unquote white male in a middle-class family Um, and to me NAIDOC week is just like a recognition of like all the trailblazers um, from past years like Paul Coe, Michael Anderson who founded the Indigenous Tent Embassy um, and just a celebration of culture and bringing, um, and bringing to light some of those issues that are so prominent and so prevalent in Australia still to this day. Hmm. And I guess, I mean, because you, you volunteer with, um, with SEED and you're involved with SEED, um, what can you tell us a bit, a bit about some of the work that you're involved with SEED at the moment? Yeah, so SEED's amazing. Um, so essentially what SEED does and what it is is we're trying to empower young Indigenous people like myself um, to sort of take ownership and stand up for climate justice. And so... Um, a couple of years ago, we did the Seed Summit, which is which was in the Northern Territory, which is where we empowered. Oh, sorry, which is where we brought together um, over two or three hundred people in the community to fight for climate justice. And so, there's chapters, you know, in Queensland, New South Wales, here in Victoria, and in Northern Territory as well. And essentially, what our job is is to, um, as I said, just empower young Indigenous people and get them in, involved in the movement and try and empower them to stand up. Uh, yeah, uh, I suppose, yeah, to stand up against their local government and stand up for the things that they believe in to do with environmentalism. Hmm. And um, I guess what, because um, you just mentioned sort of climate justice, and that seems to be mm. kind of like the centre of, um, you know, C, the work that C does and also by extension AYCC as well. Yeah. Um, what, what can you give us your sort of perspective on sort of what does climate justice mean, especially in this sort of Setting. political political context mm. that we're kind of in right yeah. now? So... Climate justice essentially is framing um, climate change as a human rights and political issue instead of just environmental issue like, um, you know, a lot of people think it to be, I guess. Um, and so it's essentially provi- uh, putting, up, putting up front the idea that um, climate change isn't, is a human rights issue and that there's, there's three systems that sort of underpin um, the systems that we currently have that force, you know, the, 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 sorry, f- uh, forces this inaction on climate change. So it's, you know, the patriarchy, capitalism and racism. And so these three things are sort of the, are the under, underpinning, um, you know, systems that have 
got us to where we are now and what climate justice is, is essentially standing up for the little guy, essentially standing up for the people who are most affected but are doing the least to contribute, you know. So that's what climate justice is. Um, and I, I suppose if you ask anyone else, that's sort of how they'll frame it <laughs> as well. So, yeah. Well, I'm going, I mean, you, you mentioned how it's sort of disproportionately, um, you know, how climate change is a, as an issue is kind of disproportionately impacting on the most marginalised communities yeah. Yeah. Um, and especially those who actually have least to do with it. Mm. And in particular, you can probably, um, you know, as an individual person, you can probably recognise that um, climate change is looking like in the Australian context will likely disproportionately impact on Aboriginal people. And I guess what 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 is your comment on on the question of well how of Aboriginal sovereignty and how that kind of connects with achieving climate yeah. justice? Well, I might just um, tell uh, I suppose maybe a short story. Um, and I mentioned earlier how I volunteered in Indigenous community in Cairns when I was about sixteen or seventeen. I was there for a few months. Um, and there was like a realization of a lot of things that I hadn't currently, uh, that I sort of hadn't previously been aware of. Um, and my point that I'm trying to make is like, in this indigenous community, it was, it's one of the poorest in Australia, just this suburb. It's called Yarrabah. Um, and CIFA, which is like a body that sort of rates how, how disadvantaged communities are, um, has, yeah, has rated it the poorest in Australia. And it's strictly indigenous. And over half the, uh, over half the community there don't even have access to electricity. But because this, um, because this community is right on the coast of, um, of, of Cairns, um, they're obviously going to be, you know, up in, in the, in the forefront of, of climate change once sort of, I guess, quote unquote, shit hits the fan. So, um, yeah, sorry, what was the question again? Well, basically <laughs> how, uh, how achieving Aboriginal sovereignty, uh, yeah. um, in, in the concentration is linked with the question of climate yeah, justice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, recently there's been like a lot of, uh, light that's sort of been born on, uh, you know, Australian, oh, sorry, Indigenous Australian authors like Bruce Pascoe. Um, oh, yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's excellent. He's the hit right Bruce oh, Pascoe yeah. on our program. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, that'd be uh, great. Should. I would absolutely love that. He's a great man. He's yeah. a very great man. Um, but essentially, yeah, so, um, I'll try and define it quite simply, but, for 65,000 years, there's even been studies recently that shown that uh, Indigenous Australians have been here for over 80,000, which is mm. quite crazy. Even more studies, there uh, over 100,000 yeah. some of the outlier studies. They yeah. just keep coming, keep yeah, coming. Absolutely. It's fascinating stuff. Anyway, um, so yeah, so for 80,000, 80, 100,000 years, um, this land was so pristine. There was nothing, nothing wrong with it. Indigenous peoples took care of the land because it's part of them, part of their nature, part of their law. And essentially, Indigenous um, sovereignty... Um, how can I sort of quote this? So indigenous so sorry, it's linked because it's linked in the way that indigenous peoples um, obviously take care of the land, and they're the ones who are you know who are facing the issue of being oppressed by the government, in which who who are forcing you know climate change through through you know through um, their their form of agriculture, their form of um, you know infrastructure, whereas indigenous peoples um, you know. For 80,000 years, there was, they had done nothing but kept the land, you know, uh, in check and in balance through their ecological processes, which Bruce Pascoe, um, in the famous book Dark Emu has brought up to the, brought up to the limelight re- very recently. And people are starting to learn more, uh, more about the issue that Australian Indigenous peoples are, have the ability to take care of their land and that we, that they weren't just this quote unquote, um, uh, sorry, what's the word I'm looking for? Sorry, they weren't just like this backwards, you know these backwards people, and they actually had um, you know, had had ways to sort of keep the land in check, which which the government clearly doesn't recognise. But slowly, slowly, these these things are coming to the forefront, and that's one of the great things about NAIDOC Week. Hmm. Is it a celebration yeah. of that of that culture? Yeah. 
I mean, I mean, even outside, um, you know, indigenous communities in the United States, technically, mm. you know, the whole way of life, you know, pre-industrial mm. age, um, or mm. pre agriculture, yeah. <laughs> pre, um, although the Bruce Pascoe's book also goes in <laughs> a lot to be about how, you know, a lot of indigenous community actually did participate in sort of our culture, yeah. which sort of, um, blows a, um, a sort of casket on some of the long-standing sort of historical kind of assumptions about Absolutely. about those societies. Absolutely. But even then, the point still stands that these communities have been thriving for much longer um, mm. than sort of modern industrial capitalism has been for, um, which has sort of only last only sort of started appearing in the past hundred years, and that is probably the economic system that is sort of. Um, accelerating our our kind of doom yeah. um and so yeah it's 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 kind of it's completely you know um problematic to sort of just go paint these cultures backwards mm. when actually you know it's our modernization that is actually probably putting us into a deep kind of societal crisis that we might not be able to get out of unless we start standing up and fighting back. And there's this vast, um, in many um, Indigenous communities, there's this kind of vast um, oral history and lore about the land. And, um, you know, we need to very, you know, immediately um, start putting people into positions like rangers, etc., to start managing the land according to what they've been doing for so many years. Like, But, you know, just even just in Indigenous plants and animals... you know how to how to use them, how to um, manage them, all these sorts of things. Mm. And if we don't, um, there's that that whole idea of if we don't actually put indigenous people in charge of the areas that they know so well, we will lose that knowledge. And that's actually it's not just the in climate thing; it's the social justice issue of saving cultures and yeah. empowering people to continue their cultures and that information. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And and it's actually fascinating that you say that because um like sometimes I'll just hang around. On job search, and I'll see a lot of these indigenous park range roles come up, and and yeah, there's clear that there's I've a movement that. towards yeah. that, which is yes. which is great. And I'm just going to give a shout oh. out to my friend Christopher Jacoby, who works at uh, the Botanical Gardens in Melbourne. He's on yeah. his land here, um, and he just knows so much about indigenous plants and 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 animals, and just and just sort of how to take care of the land. And it's unique to each sort of culture because every land and every um and every sort of um, layout of the land is different, you know, and exactly. and the people of that land know it best because they've been able to take care of it for, as we said, 80,000 years. And so it's almost absurd mm-hmm. to think that that's now in the hands of, you know, quote-unquote white Australians or people who weren't born on that land, people who don't know the stories of that land. Because I seem to believe that there's, you know, it's always important to um, to have some form of reliance on science, but I do also believe that there's mm-hmm. a, a form of, like, um, of, of understanding that you just can't get from science about, about the land and about certain things that happen to the land at certain times that science just can't explain. It's the history and the story of those, yeah. the, those lands that we kind of lack or we just look at it from a scientific yeah, perspective. Yeah, exactly, which yeah. is where we sort of have to think as a, as a society and as a community and, and in politics that we have to look so much so much deeper than that because it's proven that there is more to look at, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, it is fascinating, this stuff, and it's also quite sad, and it, it saddens me a little bit as well because, like, I know so many people like myself who are so lost from their culture just due to, um, you know, just due to intergenerational things happening. So you're so. in a Gadjuri man in yeah. Adelaide Hills? Adelaide right? Hills region, yeah. yeah. So, um, I think down south, unfortunately, and, and this is because of colonialism, mm. um, that culture and that connection has been lost 
And it's not due to Indigenous people. It's mm. literally this is where white people settled. And, yeah. of course, we know what happened, um, you know, when they did. So that disconnection, um, it's great to see people actually starting to reconnect. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you know, it, it's... It, it is something that's very sad because it, you do see a lot of uh, young Indigenous people. And I was having this discussion the other day that um, a lot of young Indigenous people don't actually want to engage because there's been so much trauma throughout their history that they're almost not proud to be Indigenous. And Which is so sad. Yeah, it's yeah. it's very confronting and it's very sad because I think for myself, you know, um, as I said, I, I grew up in, in quite a, um, you know, I suppose a, a a middle class background almost and, and I didn't I wasn't actually aware of my culture and so mm. when I found out about it I remember telling my friends like how proud I was so I just you know I was so happy to happy to be that but even then like my friends would be like oh so you're really indigenous like you look kind of white and mm. I get that all the time and you get people like me as well who who you know it might be their great grandfather who's indigenous but they're still indigenous and they're still being mm. doubted of their doubted of their aboriginality which is one of the saddest things is how mm. can they reconnect if if people around them are constantly doubting whether they're quote unquote indigenous or not, like yeah. it's yeah. very sad. And so what C does is we try and connect people like that and and you know back to their culture and back to their roots to try and sort of take ownership of, of what their culture is. And there's yeah. so many great organisations like this. Like um, you might have heard of Waiapa Work, who yes, they're, yeah. they're like a youth work organisation that they yeah. work with young indigenous yeah. uh, people who who feel a bit disconnected or you know ostracised from society and they, and they get them out on country and they get them to go on camps and get them to learn about, you know, what it is that sort of has made them and has made their culture. And it's great stuff. It's really this great stuff. Absolutely fascinating. Do you think that um, Seed's work is cut out here? Like they've got their work cut out mm. here in down down south where there, there is that disconnect. Yeah. Um, what sort of inroads are they making into the community and has there been sort of... Um, uh, like a progression of connection and and sort of put it, sort of making that community promoting that community. Yeah, so it's it's quite honest, it's it's very hard sometimes because um, a lot of our a lot of people that do volunteer um, uh, or are quite unquote on the inner circle, they're just around the office a lot. Are mm. the uni students or are from the city? So it's very hard to sort of get out into some of those country areas. And mm. you'll notice in in Queensland um, and in Tasmania, there, there's a huge seed presence and and every, and Northern Territory as well. There's a lot of people who are who are involved in C, but in Victoria, uh, per capita, we have the I suppose kind of the least amount of Indigenous recognised mm. people uh, per and population, that, and we, we know, know that. The yeah. Why. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so for seed, it's we, we make in, inroads shortly, so we might do call-outs or little community events in the, in, in 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 the country in Gippsland that sort of thing. But it is still a very hard road for us, and I think in Victoria we probably have it harder than most, just due to the fact that we. Our, our active volunteers, like the ones who are around the office and who ha- who can spare the time to volunteer, mm. there's really not many of us. There's maybe four or five of us that are, that are very involved, whereas in Queensland there's a lot more than that. And so um, often we'll come together for like for meetings on Zoom and talk about how we can sort of get further in the community and, and how we can get pe- more people to engage. But it's a very hard road. But what we're doing is 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 part of the process and I'm very proud of what we are doing. It's, it's and great. it's really important as well. Actually on that note, mm-hmm. can you give us some contact details? Like how, how does someone get in contact with you? So you know if they want to support mm-hmm. you or if they're an Indigenous pe- person and they want to mm-hmm. actually get involved in campaigns how, what do they do? Yeah so honestly it's as easy as this. You can either look up Seed on Facebook um, and there'll be a group that comes up or you can just look at our website seed.org.au oh, sorry, seed.org.au. Yeah, sorry it's seed.org.au <laughs> 
Uh, and it will sort of come up with some of our um, campaigns. Like currently we're running the Don't Frack the NT campaign and we've actually got people running around right now outside of the Origin office Fantastic. trying to cause Good a bit of a ruckus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Good on them. Uh, trying to just have conversations with yeah. some, of the, some of the workers in that office about why they want to frack the NT and what, what, you know, how are they going to benefit from it. So, um, yeah, so the Facebook page, the Instagram page, um, even contacting me, myself or Jacoby, yeah. who are two active volunteers here. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, obviously... Any 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 help is 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 great. And can they donate to seed as well? <laughs> yeah, anyone can donate to seed, um, indigenous or non-indigenous. Um, and obviously, all proceeds go to to working on our campaigns and working on getting more indigenous people engaged in mm. in you know in the mission, which is what we're also passionate about. So impressed by Seed's passion <laughs> and and what they've done. It's just amazing. Yeah. This is look. It's just so. It's been needed mm. for so long. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Definitely some some special shout outs to some people who have done a lot of a lot for Seed. Millie Telford, who's mm. um, who's just an amazing woman. Um, she does so much for Seed. Um, Larissa Waters. Uh, Christopher Jacoby, Jam Graham Blair, um, and one of my close friends, Zach um, Townsend. They all do a lot for Seed, and they have been doing so much for so many years. And they're almost like the uh, the glue that sort of keeps it together when things sort of start to go pear shaped. Sometimes when you know yeah. volunteers drop off, volunteers they sort of, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> when they, when when sometimes yeah, volunteers you yeah. know drop off, they sort of get us all together and they you know form plans to sort of to engage and it's it's great stuff it's yes. great being a part um, of it i guess we're going to wrap up yeah, wrap so up. do you have uh, but we have time what? for a final comment exactly yeah. what final comment do you want to make um yeah so in, it's obviously natick week next week um in all the major cities and, and i believe there'll be some in um like some some little uh, urban capitals around the states as well um Definitely get involved, get down to some of the festivities, get down to some of the festivals. Uh, the Nanook March, obviously, um, and the Nanook Gala Ball is to, is tomorrow night, I believe, um, in Melbourne. And so get down, even just show support, donate to seed. There's lots of things you can do. And even just learn more about Indigenous culture. Yes. So you can tell your friends, read the book Dark yeah. Emu. Oh, God, that's amazing. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you so much. And now it's Jacob Peluso. Isn't yeah, it? that's my name. Jacob Peluso of Seed. Check out Seed and check out the great work that Jacob and all his volunteers um, at Seed have been doing. Uh, Thank yeah, you. Yeah, pretty great. Thank you. Yeah, excellent. Right, we might just um, finish up the program now. Um, yes. And um, thank all listeners for tuning in and um, tuning in um, next Friday. Absolutely. <laughs> Check out NADOC Week um, uh, details and listen to Beyond Zero Emissions. They're up next. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio.